Here's a few words with Jesse Bond of Southwest Fire Academy. Hey, Jesse. Hey, man. How you doing? Good. What's coming up with SFA? Uh, not too much coming up over the next few months in the summer. Um, we do have a few things that we're going to be adding probably in autumn. And we just added a bunch of new boot camps to our 2024 calendar. So just keep your eyes posted. We're talking with instructors and going to get our course calendar ready for next year. So that's on the way out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 69 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. You have to work hard and make sacrifices and compromises to achieve a spot on a fire crew. When you are offered the opportunity and you arrive there and the culture of that crew, platoon, or department doesn't clearly offer the path forward and maintain the expectation, it's alluring to let the feeling wash over you that you've crested the summit and not simply reached a plateau. There may be classification exams to move you through the firefighter ranks, but they're not a map of the routes to full competency and effectiveness. They aren't guides on how to go from being hired as a firefighter to actually becoming one. If you are surrounded with coworkers that haven't become firefighters themselves, then your models are misrepresentations of the real. Take moments to truly look at the people in the system around you. Allow the scales to fall from your eyes and ask yourself, are these people firefighters? Is this a fire department? What other models and mentors are out there that I can emulate? You can fit in and continue to grow into the firefighter you dream to be, despite the soil you've been planted in. Here's my chat with Scott Haywood. Why don't you kick things off by telling me where you grew up and a little bit about your family? For most of my life, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, here, until I was about 13 years old. Being the oldest of four, I had two brothers and two sisters. I started getting a little rambunctious. So my mom, who was divorced from my father, my father was a military lifer. She decided to send me to live with him, hoping that it would get me to go down a straight and narrow, per se. So I moved with him. We were stationed in Quantico, Virginia, just outside the FBI base. I stayed there through high school. Once I graduated high school out of uh, Mullica Hill, Mantua, New Jersey, I decided I wanted to move back with my two brothers and my sister that were still in Buffalo and my mom. So, and then I've been here ever since. I also did a stint in the army. After high school, let me just backtrack. After high school, I followed in the military footsteps per se and uh, signed up to be a military police officer in the army. I did two years in the military. And when I was discharged, I then moved back with my father before deciding to move to Buffalo, New York with my brothers and sisters. How was school for you all the way through until you enlisted? I was a very mediocre student, not for a lack of, I wasn't dumb per se, I was lazy. I had to be pushed and prodded by my father to get C's. I would find myself waiting until the last month of each semester and then just hitting it hard in order to get the C's. So it wasn't that I couldn't do it, it wasn't a priority for me, unfortunately. I wish I would have done better. And then when it came to graduating high school and I asked my father to go to college 
and he was like, I had to fight with you all four years of high school to get you to get C's. You think I'm going to send you to college? So that's kind of why I, that and my father was in the military. So I, that's why I kind of leaned towards the military for the GI Bill and stuff like that. Any other mentors or guides other than your dad growing up? I'm a firm believer that I have mentors in the fire service that are all different ranks, ranks below me, ranks above me. I mean, I'm currently working under a division chief that has pushed me to operate outside my comfort zone and isn't showing me in a whole nother side of the department that I didn't even know was there, nor did I want to know this aspect of the job. I'm more of a in-the-street guy, but this is just really, you don't realize how much of the fire service is out there until you get out of your comfort zone. And that's kind of, she's really pushed me. <laughs> I'm not going to say I liked it all the time, but I knew it was for a greater good. I've worked under great chiefs like Mike Lombardo, who's just a legend in the fire service. He's forgot more than I've ever known. I mean, and these guys, I don't even think you have to be super tight with people to be mentored. I watched him work and I just watched how he approached the job and it just, it left an impression upon me that I want to be that guy. I want to be like him. He really, I mean, he knows who I am and I know who he is and we speak and we're friendly, but he was a huge influence on my fire career. Chiefs like Don McFeely, another one. He was a division chief that I worked under. And then you got your firemen. I got senior firemen I wanted to be like. So my mentors were all based really on their approach to the job and they all helped guide me. I mean, I have a close-knit group of friends that I still of all ranks, lieutenants that I bounce stuff off of. And when you come to or outside the fire service mentors, my father-in-law was a huge one. I watched how, because my family, I don't know if it's because we were divorced or my parents were divorced or whatever. We were close. We would stick up for each other through thick and thin, but we don't call each other daily. But then I get, I married into his family and I watched how they interact with each other and i wanted that for my family growing up when i started having a family to have that so he he was a huge influence on how i approach my family life how was the military experience for those two years did it straighten you out the way it was hoped and was it a culture shock for you as much as you had an idea of the service from your dad i'm a firm believer that there are no mistakes in life there are lessons and that was a lesson in my life. I wasn't as disciplined as I should have been. Otherwise, I'd have been promoted up the chain a little faster and done much better in the military. I don't think I got the most out of the military. And that's one of my biggest regrets in life is I didn't get the most out of that experience that I could have because I was I was right out of high school, literally graduation, graduated, packed a suitcase, went to basic training, went through AIT. I tended to do, you learn though about yourself, I tended to do more again in the hands-on field aspect of it than I better in that than I did in the clerical and other aspects of it and staying out of trouble. (laughs) Being the oldest and a single mom, you were unsupervised, so I was a little rowdy growing up and uh, I've learned to kind of discipline that aspect of my behavior over the years through multiple lessons you do get stuff out of it i didn't get the most out of it that i should have or i could have were you athletic as a kid was the boot camp something that was new to you that level of physical exertion 
when I grew up, we played sports, whatever season it was, we were outside playing all day long. I was super athletic. I enjoyed sports. I played baseball in high school. I signed up for football, my discipline, and I went through all the two-a-days and all that and decided that wasn't for me, even though I played football growing up all through all through grade school. I enjoyed the going out back and playing. So I was, and I always did pretty well, I thought, as a sports player. Why leave the military? Why not stay in? What made you want to venture out? The discipline at the time. I was still sort of undisciplined. It just, it wasn't for me. I mean, it's a, it's a, like I said, it's a huge regret I have because I think I could have really excelled at it if I, I and I, I'm a firm believer we can, we can excel at anything we like. It's the really disciplined individuals that excel in the things that they don't like as much. And I didn't have the discipline at that time to coming fresh, fresh out of high school. I didn't like being told what to do, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> And what did you get up to in between the military and the fire service? Or what was your first exposure to the fire service? And it made you want to take that as your next path? When I got out of the military, I, like I said, I moved back to New Jersey and I worked for a buddy. He still sells paintballs. As a matter of fact, we sold paintball uh, equipment and he's a really, really big company, but I just missed my family. So my younger brother, two younger brothers and my sister that were in Buffalo, I still had my other sister in New Jersey with me but I grew up with the other three. So I really miss them. And I wanted to move back there in my family. I'd had firefighters. Uh, my uncle was a firefighter. My grandfather was a firefighter, but I really didn't have much exposure to the job. I came back to Buffalo and my father-in-law, I proposed to his daughter after a couple of years and I was a phlebotomist. I drew blood for a living and I thought I was, I thought I was crushing it, making $13 an hour and having health insurance. And he's like, I'll never forget it. He's sitting there and he, I asked him for his daughter's hand in marriage. And he's like, uh, you got to have a career first. And I said, I have a career. And he's like, no, I mean a real career. And that was kind of like culture shock. And he goes, I, I expect you to treat my daughter as I would treat her. And I'm like, oh, man, talk about pressure. He literally, and I owe, I owe him, he's passed now, but I owed him a tremendous amount. He literally went down when the civil service test came out and he brought me the police and the fire application. And at the time I wanted to be a police officer because I'd just gotten out of the military a couple of years prior and I was a police officer in the military. So I'm like, okay, I'll take them both, whichever one I score higher on, I'm going to, I'll go with because I got to. I got to have a real career, apparently. <laughs> so I took both tests. I actually scored higher on police. I scored a 95 on police, and I scored a 92 on the fire service. And I said, whichever one called me, I was going to go to. So I decided to go to the, the fire service called me first. Now, my father-in-law, to preface this, was a detective, so he wasn't very happy. He was pushing me to go to the police department. <laughs> took the fire service job. I was in the academy. I just graduated. I wasn't off probation, did pretty well in the academy, graduated, went to my first duty assignment. And like a month in, the police department called me. And I'm like, wow, man, now he's really pressuring me. My wife wants me to be a cop because her father's a cop. And I'm like, 
I don't know. So I put in for a leave of absence with the commissioner. The commissioner granted it, said that I have never been in trouble. I was a good student out at the training or at the academy and that uh, he granted. But before, like a week before I was supposed to leave, I said, you know what? Everybody likes to see the fire department come to their door because we were there to help. Even I, when the cops come to my door, I'm like, oh, man, what's going on? And it's just a different, you're embraced more, especially in today's day and age now. Now that I look at it, it was the best decision I ever made. I watched how the public interacted with them as opposed to us. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. So I ended up staying and I'm 26 years in this April. So, What was the academy experience compared to your military experience as far as discipline and structure? And was it a surprise to you? The physical aspect, I didn't think was as hard as the military, but the stress was way, way more. And when I went into the military, I was coming right out of high school. I didn't have a, I mean, I had worked in a pizzeria and delivered newspapers. I had no kids. I had no wife. When I went into the academy, I gave up. I was working three jobs as a phlebotomist. I was, had a brand new kid. It was like a year old. And I was like... And I'm newly married. I was married like a couple, maybe a year before. I had to quit these three jobs and put all my eggs in this basket. So the, the amount of stress that you're under when you give up everything and have a family to support and a new wife, I was terrified that I was going to fail. Terrified. Because they literally called you for the fire department on a Friday, said report Monday. So there wasn't there wasn't a two-week notice where I, I left on super good terms, you know. It seems like there's been a few quick turnarounds, right? High school, straight to the military, and then that's a pretty quick turnaround, too. I mean, I worked for as a phlebotomist for eight to ten years. So I was there for a while, but it just, all of a sudden, it was like, okay, Friday they called. Do you want the job? And I'm like, yeah. So I jumped at it. And obviously, my uncle was a fireman. My grandfather was a fireman. I knew what the job entailed. I had an idea. I didn't know the difference between an engine and a truck. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I had an idea. You know, we put out fires. We go to squad calls and stuff like that. Yeah, so it was nothing that was ever pushed on you. It was just what they did, and they let you sort of make your own path. 100%. 100%. And I do that with my sons now. I have three sons. I have... Uh, 25-year-old, a 24-year-old, and a 21-year-old. I told them growing up, obviously, if they want to be a fireman, and one of them's actually in the academy in Memphis right now. He's in his third week, my youngest. And my oldest is very high on Buffalo's list. But I don't, and I always told them, I don't care whatever you do, be happy, do the best, be the best. I don't care if it's a garbage man, be the best garbage man you can be, be the best police officer you can be, whatever you decide that makes you happy. I don't care if it's a park ranger, be the best park ranger you can be not to diminish what park rangers do, but you get what I mean. Yeah, for sure. And no one pushed me. Obviously my mother was very proud as it was her brother and her father that were firemen, but so was my wife. So it was my father-in-law, who was a cop, despite him wanting me to come on the force. <laughs> <laughs> what were your rookie years like? I was on the job. I think I graduated the academy in June. And three weeks in at my first duty assignment, I'll never forget it. I was working, and we had a line-of-duty death. 
firefighter Mike Seguin from Engine 33, which I ended up being stationed there later on for a decade. Firefighter Mike Seguin was killed in line of duty. He was operating in an attic that we believe was started by fireworks landing on a Yankee gutter. And I remember working and the chief coming back from the fire and because we were in a chief, we were in an engine truck in a chief house. And the chief came back and he's like, it's not good. And I'm thinking, man, what did I sign up for? And then you go through it. And, and obviously, I mean, anybody, uh, most of the people in the fire service are watching news. And I know we were going to talk about it later. Most of them know that we're currently going through a, another tragedy. We just lost another member on Main Street in our downtown district in a three-story ordinary building fire. I mean, unfortunately, over 26 years in April, I've had to bury five guys. It's not an easy thing. Our department's kind of reeling right now. We have a very young department. I would guesstimate that 80% have never gone through a line of duty death, and that's that was good for them. Unfortunately, when you do go through your first one, it is it doesn't get much easier. Five, one, three, it doesn't get much easier. It goes, comes and goes in waves. And everyone handles it in a different way. Yes. Over the years, obviously, I mean, I've always been drawn to the inner city as a fireman. I believe that's where I could learn the most. I also believe that that's where I could do the most good, where I could help the most. And those crews were ultra, ultra aggressive. So I've always been drawn to the inner city. So it's it's tough. Uh, guys, my wife will tell you that, like, guys will come up to me. Do you remember when you did this at that fire? And I'm like, no. I th- There's a lot of stuff. My wife will tell you that I just choose to forget or choose to block out. And I'm sure someday that it will it will all come full circle. It's not good to compartmentalize things like that. Obviously, I have my my close circle that we talk about things, especially the higher up I feel like I get, the more you have to be the leader. You have to be the guy that come in the storm, and then there's a time and a place to let it go. I don't drink anymore for a while there. If you ask my wife and anybody that knew me, I was off the rails a little bit. I don't know whether it was the culture of going out every second day in or things I had seen or whatever, but I, I recognize that destructive past. And I recognize that if I didn't make change, that there were going to be changes made for me, whether I liked them or not. It's part of maturing too. I mean, I matured a lot over these last, say 10 years. Have you seen more guys make that shift or maybe not stop drinking completely but have you seen the culture of that dissipate a bit over time are things changing well i think things changed not necessarily because guys recognize certain things but the shifts have changed we're now a lot of the fire services doing 24s we used to do two nine-hour days and two 15-hour nights and we would go out after both days and we'd be out till three four o'clock in the morning these are the stories my wife doesn't like to hear because it brings back bad memories. So, but we used to go out all the time. It was we would call it a staff meeting. We would go out and we would raise holy hell, and you make a lot of mistakes and lessons. And unfortunately, new babies, and it was a lot of pressure put on my wife. I had to make a change, and uh, thank God she's a saint. She put up with a lot of shit. 
So 29 years in September. For all the emotions and thoughts that come up during firefighter funerals, one that definitely stands out for me is just that reconnection or realization of of the fire service as a whole and what this really means. So maybe talk to me about what you think about that. There's been a tremendous outpouring from all over the country with this. And we talk about, I, I talked about it with you, through tragedy, you know, it can be a divider. It can divide or bring a family together. This is kind of opened a lot of eyes. And, and I think our department as a whole has, has unified. We understand that there's a time to go over the tactics, to go over what happened. But right now, we, we need to solidify and get behind the family, try and be there for them as much as possible, and try and be there for each other. Now, especially the guys, there's not many of us left that have done this gone through it and then we have guys from all over the country just coming here to support us we've had the international sent an entire peer support team up here to try and help guys get through this you know it's just a huge family that has no no boundaries it just come they come from all over it's going to be tomorrow it'll mean a tremendous amount to the family to see the number of people that have come just to recognize jay his efforts yes the other day has it been a common arc through your experiences of this that people come out from the woodwork and start questioning tactics, maybe out of ignorance? Is there pushback like that? You understand guys want answers. Guys want to know what happened. Their friend passed away, their their coworker, someone's father, someone's husband passed away. People want to know. Guys that were there, I was there. Chiefs want to know what happened. Firefighters want to know what happened. We all want to know what happened and what we can do to not have to do this again. Unfortunately, with our job comes inherent danger. And I don't know that we'll ever eliminate it, but by getting those answers, we will be able to try and minimize the risk a little bit. There's just a time and a place for it. I actually, one of my firefighters from when I was a captain at 33 asked me, you know, about some of the tactics. And there was a quote by John Salka out there that's talking about questioning tactics and when we're not there or when we arrive late because we don't know what happened in the beginning. We're trying to find that out and it'll all come out. There'll be a NIOSH report, obviously, and stuff like that. There's an internal investigation within the department that'll come out. We all want answers. We all want to know what happened. The family wants to know what happened. Just right now is not the time. In my opinion, my opinion, let's let's be there for each other and the family. We'll start to revisit it after that. Absolutely. How's your trajectory been through the department as far as promotion and maybe touch on instructing if you've gotten into that? I was a firefighter for 20 years. I didn't take a promotional exam until I had 20 years on. I was having a lot of fun. Like I said, I am more of the hands-on guy. It's very difficult. That's probably my biggest weakness as an officer. Whether I was a lieutenant, captain, or chief, is I want to do it. I have trouble telling people to do it because I want it done. I want it done a certain way, and I've learned to be better at that by training them the right way to do things instead of give someone fish, you feed them for a day, you teach them how to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. So you try to leave it better than you found it. When I had 20 years on, so before I got to the promotion aspect, I worked all over the city. I was predominantly on the east side. 
I was at Engine 22, which was on Broadway. I got that. It took me 77 bids to get a busy engine. I got to Engine 22 on Broadway, and I'll never forget it. I was there for three years. We were running. We were going to fires like crazy. And the commissioner at the time met with everybody at Spring Inspections and said, we're going to close a couple companies. We're going to close this one, and it's in the Lovejoy of our city, and we're going to close this other truck. And we're like, oh, we dodged a bullet. And then the next day, he was on news and said he was closing us. So he decided to change his mind overnight. And I was watching the news at the kitchen table, and I'm like, holy shit, that's us. He meant he had to mess up. Well, he didn't mess up. So I bid a truck over on the west side, and they never closed the company. <laughs> but they closed the company I went to. So then I left that one because they closed. Truck 9 on the west side, I left that one and bid truck 12, which is on the upper west side. And they closed that one. So I was like, oh, I bid engine 33 at that time on the east side back to the inner city. And those guys were worried they were going to close because I came there. But we ended up staying open and I stayed there for a decade. I was, we talk about diversity and, and stuff like that within the fire service. It was a tremendous learning environment for me. I had some of my best friends were there. I was the only white guy on the crew but they treated me like a brother and it opened my eyes to the way people throughout the city. I, you know, I grew up in South Buffalo, which is a predominantly Irish neighborhood and it kind of opened my eyes to there's another, there's a bunch of different ways of life out there and we need to be understanding. And those guys welcomed me in. They were a little leery at first. Once I got there, they realized I was there for the right reasons and they embraced me and they taught for, for a decade. I was there before I decided to bid the rescue. So I bid the rescue and I know I was 260 pounds at the time because I wasn't in my fighting shape from high school. I was 260, I was about five foot by five foot. And, but I never had a problem doing a job. But when I decided to bid the rescue because I wanted to go to more fires and do more work, I didn't want to be the guy that couldn't go in the hole or couldn't go over the edge. I always wanted to be, I didn't want to be the weak link. So I started losing weight and working out again, just like I did in high school. Ended up going from 260 to 160. I got to the rescue and those guys, I'll tell you, and we talk about again, operating outside your comfort zone. Those guys, their mantra is Jefferson and Kingsley, 21-6 in a rescue where respect is earned, not given. And you go there and if you didn't do what's expected or you were uh, turd, for lack of a better term, they let you know. And I wasn't even going to study. For, I was having so much fun going to fires that I wasn't planning on studying. And again, everybody on my platoon was, they're all signed up for lieutenant's exam. And they're like, what are you doing? Don't sign up. And they pushed me to sign up. And we had 33 of the top 50 were out of that house getting promoted. And it's, we lost almost a whole platoon that got promoted because they push each other to be better. And it was, it brought me to the next level. It truly did. Was there development support along the way as you transition to upper ranks or is it pretty much just learned experience from the people you're around and the calls you go to? So from the tactics standpoint, it was mostly from 
the guys that I had worked with. I've always worked with aggressive firemen and I they would teach you things. And, and that's kind of what we're lacking right now. I, when I came to 33, I was the baby and I had nine years on. Those guys all had 24 plus on my crew. They brought me from a green firefighter to this guy that I was very polished on the engine. Then when I went to the rescue, they expect you to know fire. They don't have time to teach you how to fight fires. They expect you. I had already been on a truck. I was on two trucks. I went to the engine, got my experience. So I was pretty well-rounded when I got there because there's just so much more between auto extrication, confined space, water rescue, ice rescue. There's so much more that they have to teach you. They're like, you better know fire when you get here because we don't have time to hold your hand. And they pushed me tactics-wise to, to learn different things. So I would also, when I'm working out, because now I'm trying to stay in shape and get in shape for this next chapter of my career, and I would watch training videos because, I again, I didn't, whether it was physically or mentally, I didn't want to be the weak link. I wanted, they told me, we're going to do a pickoff. I wanted to know. I didn't want to have to ask. There's no time to ask at the scene. So... I wanted to know exactly what I was doing. I never wanted to be the dummy in the group. I'm just a high school graduate, never went to college. Never, I mean, went in the military for a couple of years. I'm, I am your Joe Schmo. The thing that separates me is just, I just, I try to outwork as many people as possible and try and be, because it's the higher up, the more responsibility you get. Now, when I'm back on the line, I'm currently in safety position, but once I'm back on the line, you're going to be responsible for 35 guys that have fired. And it's something you can't take lightly. And if this this recent tragedy hasn't solidified that opinion, I don't know what will. I got promoted to lieutenant out of the rescue. Um, I was lieutenant for two years. I bid again over on the east side, the inner city, over to Engine 3. I had a great crew over there. It was kind of bittersweet. I took the captain's exam. And I hadn't anticipated going past lieutenant. But I saw that at different levels, the higher up you go, I always believed you can take the next test to promote positive change at a bigger level. So I was making positive change. My crew was, I had a great time with my crew. They're good firemen, good young guys, but I wanted to create bigger change. So I wanted to do it at the house level. So that's why I took the captain's exam. I took the captain's exam, got promoted, returned back to 33 after two years as a lieutenant, went there. The house was an ultra aggressive house very set in their ways. We made a lot of changes. We came together as, as a team. I mean, I, they really have, I can't say enough. They were going through some things prior to me getting there. I went there and we had a vision that we shared and I laid out the path to how we were going to get there. And everybody to a man, except for maybe one guy bought in and we made it happen. After two years as a captain, I said, oh, I'll just take the chief's exam just in case. And I don't even like to tell people because I had no intention of taking the chief's job. And I didn't really, I didn't study, but I did very well on it because I truly live like that. When it came to the exam and I was being questioned and I was being asked certain questions, I just fell back on everything we were doing at 33, training schedule, how we approached the job, how we approached our equipment, everything. And I ended up doing very well and got promoted, and I was the first chief promoted. Then it kind of put me on my wheelhouse. I loved training, but I didn't love training at the classroom. 
I love the hands-on stuff and you got to push yourself. And I was the chief of training from October to just recently. And we just finished up our uh, first line supervisor training program for our lieutenants. An eight week program training those guys. And I love training. Don't necessarily like the classroom portion. <laughs> I'm okay at it. I think I like to say, you know, I'm more of, I relate to people because I, I don't think of myself as, I don't even care what they call me, whether they call me BC chief, as long as you're not disrespectful. I've always just related to people on a human level. They know who I am. They know what I'm about. I make no, I don't hide it. I don't put on a persona. I don't, it's, and you ask my wife, I am the same person when it comes to the fire service at home. When we talk about it, as I am, when I go to the, go to the job, I take it seriously. I mean, I've lost five brothers that like, were killed in the line of duty. I know what happens when things go wrong. And it's very rarely that it's one thing that goes wrong. It's usually some dominoes that line up. And and so I, I approach it very seriously, probably too serious for some people, some firefighters or maybe even chiefs or lieutenants. But I've been around a minute and I've seen what happens if you if you become complacent or let your guard down on this job. When did you first get into an instructor role in your career? When I had three years on, uh, another guy that I always, that's in my inner circle that I always lean on or I bounce questions off of. He's a captain over at Truck 4 now, Sean Egan. He and I, when we had three years on, wanted to be county instructors in Buffalo. We all, now we're as green as they come. And we drove down to Montour Falls, the State Fire Academy, and we took our instructor on our own, paid for the hotel or for the lodging, paid for our meals, all of that stuff, and got our instructor then. He went on to instruct. I did not. I interviewed for a job. I didn't get it with the county. I really started instructing just at the company level, not even so much as a firefighter, but as a lieutenant. I started because I knew what I wanted to do. I had to, okay, it's the basics, basics, basics. If you have the basics down, you can get you can get through 85% of this job. The rest, we can kind of figure out. If you don't have the basics down, you're going to struggle. So we hammered the basics. And obviously, I grew as a lieutenant. There's things that the way I did it as a lieutenant that I don't do now as a chief. I think we're all constantly growing. But once I got lieutenant, I started, well, actually, once I was a firefighter at the rescue, and I started seeking out all the resources that were out there to train on for myself as a firefighter, I realized, oh, my God, there's this whole nother side of the fire service that's out there. I'm a medium-sized fish and a huge pot. I have people outside of the department that I, I lean on inside the department. Um, I started instructing as a lieutenant at the company level. Then I went out to the training bureau as a battalion commander for one of the recruit classes. That was, uh, and I like, I coach. So I kind of equated to coaching. I'm a, a high school baseball coach for St. Francis High School. I'm their JV baseball coach. I equate training to sports a lot. That they they kind of run parallel to each other, leadership wise, team wise, all that. So maybe that's what made me so comfortable teaching and instructing at a company level, and even at a uh, battalion commander level when it came to the academy. Did that recruit class, and I love watching firefighters, whether they're on the line or in a recruit class, go from point A to flourishing into point B. You watch that transformation into a pretty well-rounded firefighter 
at whatever you're assigning to. I was assigned to an engine as a lieutenant. But I'm watching them grow and you growing as an officer with them. That was super rewarding. The length of the academy, on the other hand, I wasn't real fond of that. But because <laughs> you go from your 24-hour shift to your days, but it was worth it in the end. I still see all those guys that were in my recruit class and there's that bond that, hey, I watched you as green as they come to watching you grow now as a fireman and got a little sense of pride with most of them. There's a lot more conferences available now than ever and more so in the States than there is up here. When did you first start getting out to conferences? Do you make a point to go every year to certain ones? How do you approach that? I think I've been to one or two. I would love to go to FDIC. I know that truck captain Sean Egan teaches out there. I know there's one down in Florida. I want to go Pensacola. I think it was. There's a bunch of them I want to go to. It's just hey, with what's going on now, I can't. But I always, between coaching and my family, I, I have to. The first 15 years of my career, I put my family on the back burner for wrong reasons. So now I have to, I almost feel like it's their time. I do as much as I can. I do a lot of online training webinars and stuff like that. I follow a lot of guys. It's, it's a lot different now than when I came on. There's so much material out there that at the click of a mouse that you can go. Now, obviously, I bet what I, I mean, I'm fortunate enough that I have a lot of experience, but I bet what I pass on to my peers and, and anybody that asks for training material, but it's all out there. It's amazing how much material is out there, how much you can learn if you really set aside a little bit of time and put the work in. When did you first start making use of social media and how has that experience been for you? Do you feel like it's mostly positive Then we're shifting things in the right direction? I started with social media. I mean, I always had a Facebook account for personal, but once I became captain of Engine 33, I mean, as a lieutenant of Engine 3, I can't, I, I didn't want to put out a Engine 3 Instagram page because I was only in charge of one platoon. But once I was in charge of the house as a captain, I started Engine 33 social media page. It's been a really positive experience. I don't run it anymore, but I started using Instagram for myself and just things that I believe in and putting them out there. And if people want to watch them or people want to see them and whether they're training videos or leadership videos if they want to see them click on it for the most part it's been super positive there is no rhyme or reason so i've saw because i've had guys actually misinterpret a post and thought i was talking about a fire they were at i don't do that i don't call people out on social media i'm just not that guy i don't i'm not a keyboard warrior I'm more of a, if I have a problem with you, I'll go and I'll have that conversation with you. We'll work it out one way or another. But I use social media now just for to try and inspire and teach and, and help in the small part that I can. The small group of people that pay attention to what I post. And you have your guys that reach out and try and bait you, obviously. But And it's a discipline. And I've typed a lot of stuff on there and then backspaced a whole bunch. I just try not to engage with that stuff. There is there's very, very rarely are there any negative comments or anything like that. I, I promote training. I promote leadership. And it's hard to really challenge on those things. I mean, I guess you could if you really wanted to. The crews you've been on have been 
very aggressive and had a strong fire culture. Is there a strong baseline fire culture in your department and at your level now? How are you trying to either influence it to shift it to be even stronger or maintain it? Our department is a very aggressive department. We go in on structure fires operating off of a booster tank with a second and do company dropping a reverse lane and feeding, giving us a feed. So we don't have a secure water source. We're operating off of our uh, booster tank. And I mean, as far as the department itself, obviously you have those that are more aggressive than others, but overall we're a pretty aggressive department and that's how we train. I try and push that. The biggest adjustment for me is, was everybody isn't going to have the same mindset as me. I had to adjust that everybody's not going to love the job like I do. They're not going to do, and I'm not saying that I love it any more than anybody else, but I'm just saying there are different levels with this job. I do have a minimum as a chief, as a captain, as a lieutenant, even as a firefighter, a senior man on a, on a crew. I had a minimum and they needed to meet that minimum. I'm a firm believer that the minimum is one step above failure. So my minimum wasn't everybody's minimum, (laughs) but we overall train aggressively. We have an aggressive mindset. Biggest challenge right now is we have a very young department. I went to a retirement seminar probably last May just to look into retirement and the entire command staff, every battalion chief, every division chief could retire the next day if they wanted to. And now all these young firefighters, all these young lieutenants, these young captains are going to be the next leaders. And so I try and promote positive change and train up guys as much as I can so that they're ready. Some like it, some don't. I have a job to do and my job is to try and prepare these guys to be the next lieutenants, the next captains, the next chiefs. Overall, it's pretty aggressive especially for a small city. We only have 295,000 people here, I think. You know, we get a lot of work per capita. Part of maintaining or achieving a strong fire culture is accountability. And we can talk a lot about how important accountability is, but maybe on a more practical level, as you've moved through the ranks and where you're at now, how are people held accountable in a practical sense? Like, how does it play out? How do you approach it? As far as with me, accountability, it starts with me. When something goes wrong, my first first set of eyes are on myself. I want to know, did I fail somewhere? Did I, is there something I could have done better? Is there, did I not convey my message as clearly as I possibly could have? A lot of the mistakes that happen are, are communication issue. Once I've determined, you know, if a guy is, I'll usually, again, I try and be that personable guy and talk to guy on their talk to whoever it is on their level and explain to them what I'm looking for and the direction we're going. And and most 90% of the job, guys want to be good. Now, about 70% of that 90% are willing to do what it really takes to be good. But 90% of the guys, no one wants to suck. So if you show them the way and, and they'll follow. I very rarely, I, I think I've... I've been an officer since 2000, and I don't know, since, when was it, 2018? And 
I've written one guy up and that was it. And that was after meeting with him for 18 months and sitting down with him and talking to him. Obviously we had, you know, verbal counsels and stuff like that. And, but I really, I've only been unable to reach one person in as an officer. And unfortunately there's some people you can't change. I pass it up to chain of command and they did with it what they did. How does your department, and I guess you specifically, like how do you approach mental health? Have there been any, I know you mentioned you had some of your own struggles along the way, maybe not specifically related to mental health issues, but maybe just speak on that subject for me for a bit. Well, we all know that there's been a stigma as far as mental health. When I came on, you had a shitty fire, you went out and you hung out with the guys. And I still think that's one of the best therapies out there is to hang out with one of the, with the guys at the, whether it's at the kitchen table or a ball game or a hockey game, but it's a fine line. I cross that line. It's a fine line between going out socially and it's one you have to navigate carefully or else, like I said, changes will be made for you. I try and reach out. I mean, obviously, I know what it's like to go through this. I've been through it. My dementors and I have, for the most part, they've all been through it. So we try and explain to guys that it's okay to not feel all right. What's not okay is not to reach out. It's okay. Everybody has problems. Everybody has struggles. I'm sure that there are people and new firefighters that will listen to this from Buffalo that didn't know any of this about me. They look at me as this guy has got his shit together. He's squared away. And man, they're going to be like, wow, he was a disaster. <laughs> but I mean, I try and reach out. I just let guys know I'm, I'm here. I care about you. I mean, I don't put posts on Facebook for show. I don't put posts on Instagram for show. I am truly, I give a shit. I, I give a shit about each and every one, even the guy that I didn't get through to. I don't wish any ill will on him. This is a dangerous job, and I've seen it rob us some, from, of some good firefighters, whether it's suicide, whether it's line of duty deaths, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs. I've seen this job and the stress that we come across take a lot of people. And all you can do is let them know you're there for them. There are resources there. I, I After this, I even I reached out to some of the guys that were dispatching. They're often forgotten. They're as big a piece of that machine, and for lack of a better term, the 911 machine that we are, and they're vital. They're listening on the other end, feeling helpless and unable to do anything other than dispatch and do that well. They just can't stop what's happening. It's helpless. It's almost like survivor's guilt. Over the breadth of your career, you've obviously witnessed a lot of change societal and within the fire service and it's going to continue to change how are you navigating that are there traditions you see that you know we should leave behind and replace with something new are there traditions that at our own peril we can't get rid of them the, the glue that holds us together what do you see that we can leave behind and what can we benefit from keeping i'm a firm believer that tradition within the fire service is super important it honors those before us it teaches the young guys coming on 
it's how we approach those traditions. I think it's how we, and I, and I see it like human generation, like, and I, I don't want to harp on generate different generations. When I came on, they told you to shut up and get back. Now I find it's your approach. A lot of your approach with tradition, the way you convey your message. I'm a firm believer when I talk to guys, giving them a why. Why do we load the hose this way? Why do we do this? Because this newer firefighter generation, they want to know why. Back when I came on, they just said, shut up and do it. And that doesn't work anymore. Fortunately, we're evolving. And it's you adapt or die. And I think we need to evolve as a fire service with a lot of things. We trained differently. We no longer ride in the back of our mom's car with no seatbelts on, jumping around. You know, there's a reason for it. We have, there are certain traditions and stuff that we have to change for safety's sake, for just how we treat people, how we approach it. I, I do think that's a fine line, though, because I think that has made me who I was, who I am. I am the aggressive guy in a fire because I was taught a certain way. You know, I was taught, listen, this is what we do. Well, I don't have time for questions, just do it. I'm torn, obviously, because I love tradition. I love the fire service. But I think we have to be a little more patient with the newer firefighters that are coming up. Do you think it's easier to teach someone with grit how to integrate compassion and empathy, maybe the softer side of things, than it is to take someone that is very strong in the softer skills and get them to harden up? Oh, no. I, I don't think it's easier to teach someone with grit to have empathy than it is to teach someone who has empathy to be gritty. Listen, this job comes down to heart. You need that. I think it's a balancing act. I'd rather have someone with grit and like them a little less. If it's my attic and my kids are up there, I think you have to have both. I mean, you really do. I. It took me a while, so I try and balance it. I was more gritty guy that just had no patience. I still have my patience are a challenge. I try and be a little more empathetic. Maybe it's the tragedy you see and that you live through that makes you a little more empathetic. Maybe working somewhere I'm not living has opened my eyes to another way of life and that made me more empathetic. Maybe the mistakes of my past, I don't know, but I, I think you have to have both. And you can have a little more one than the other. But I think if you have a little more empathy than grit, you're probably not as good a firefighter as you could be. Whereas if you had more grit than empathy, when it comes to tactics and doing the job, you're probably better. And obviously your immediate goal for yourself and your department is to honor this loss you're going through. But prior to this occurring and then looking to moving ahead in the future, What's your hope for your department? What things are you hoping to bring to change and keep progressing and move forward? And I've told you, I believe through tragedy, uh, unfortunately, for the entire fire service, not just my department, most of our biggest lessons are learned through tragedy. The best thing we can out of this is to honor Jay's memory by learning from what was done that day what we can do better, what we need to continue to do and implement that on the line. And then we're going to sit down after this 
after everything dies and it slows down a little bit, analyze what took place that day as a safety chief. I'm just going to, I'm going to do my best at my level to make sure guys go home. Sometimes it's out of our control. We saw that the other day. Sometimes there's, there's just nothing I can do. And that's the hardest thing to move on with that you couldn't do anything, but we can do stuff going forward. And we can learn from things that we didn't do well or we we could have done better. And I'm not saying that there was any one person or any one crew or, or any one chief that didn't do a certain thing. But I am saying that at the end of the day, whether it was Mike Seguin in 1996, when I first came on, we got thermal imagers in our department because of his passing. And every day, every time I look at a thermal imager, I think of Mike. And when we lost Chip and John on John C Street in the Delhi fire, we ended up getting an accountability system in place to try and keep our members safer because we recognized that that was a gap. And now when I see those accountability systems, I think of Chip and John. And their memory will go on uh, forever. When every time I, I teach a transitioning class, transitioning from firefighter to officer class, I talk about it. We owe it to those guys to be better, whatever it takes. And that'll be my goal going forward is to learn from this and be better, train more on the gaps that are exposed, if there were any, and just try and do my best to promote positive change while I'm here. In those cases where there was nothing we could have done that was out of our control, despite our best efforts, there's definitely some solace that comes from knowing that we put the work in ahead of time. We were as switched on as we could have been. We did everything we could. It really speaks to why putting in the work and the effort really impacts everybody in a distinct way. 100%. And that's one of the things I talk about my transitioning from firefighter officer classes. You want to be able, at the end of shift, to say, I did everything I could to prepare. And you can't possibly prepare for everything, every situation possible, because you only have so much time. But you want to try and prepare as much as possible. Because if you're waiting until that bell goes off, you're going to be chasing your tail. I approached every call I went to as a fire or every squad call as a serious emergency. Because if you wait to see what it is, you're going to be chasing your tail and you're going to be reeling. So complacency kills in this job. I always try to approach it with the utmost seriousness so that I didn't get caught. That's why we train. That's why we stretched. You ask my guys at 33, how many times they stretched? It was every day. We Every day we stretched or did a feed and we were good. I mean, we became good at it. Like I always tell them, the Buffalo Bills, even though they got knocked out of the playoffs this year a little early, the Buffalo Bills don't practice eight days a month. The eight days we work can't just be it. You have to just try and read something. Try and stay on top of your game because if you're only practicing eight days a month, it's going to be tough. And this schedule, schedule is a huge detriment, in my opinion, to the fire service. It's great for the guys. It's first time off with their families, but when you're working eight days a month and that's taking no time off instead of 15, 16 doing the job, you're not going to be as good as you were. 
I mean, it's very difficult unless you do stuff on your own. Conferences, Zoom, webinars, whatever. Get the reps in on the days you're working. Get the mental reps in on the days you're not. And I don't, and I can't expect everybody to do that. Despite which schedule we're on, do you agree that it's logistically impossible to give every firefighter the amount of training that they need? That it really is incumbent on each person to fill those gaps on their own? Yes, 100%. There has to be some self-reflection on what can I do to be better? If you wait for someone else to do it for you or bring you to it, there's just not enough time. I mean, there's just so much out. There's so many different situations you could be thrown in. And, and I just, I don't want that regret. You're always going to have some regret in this job. But if I can minimize it by training, I'm going to do it. So you got to do it on your own. You got to seek out that. And I'm always, I tell my guys, I'm always here. You have questions. You want me to come out? I'm killing myself trying to get out of this office. I'll come out and help you train or I'll come out and talk to you about stuff. I, whatever. I'm always available anybody that wants to reach out and, and talk about training and stuff like that. And one of the most prevalent topics, I think, on any conference tour or fire service medium really is leadership. Do you think it's possible to teach anybody to be a leader or do you think there's certain aspects that can't be taught that are necessary? I think the really, really good ones have it in their DNA. I think you can teach someone it has to be genuine that's the biggest thing i find they need to know you're not putting on a show you're not doing this for show you're not doing this for facebook you're not doing this for instagram you're not doing this to sound cool listen these guys and girls they can tell when you're fake and they're not going to follow a fake leader and if you genuinely care about your people and you genuinely want to be good, they will know. They can tell. And they know your intentions are good. So I think the really good leaders have that empathy, have that 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 goal to be better. They have that drive. I think you can make someone adequate. You can make them solid you can make them a solid leader but to go next level you truly have to believe it it's it has to be in your dna in my opinion i honestly like i've told you I, I truly i believe that i have to lead from the front it's not a show it's not and believe me it's a lot of it's a, i almost swore again it's a lot of pressure it's a, a tremendous amount of pressure to lead from the front and no guys are watching but if you really care about them Brace that pressure. You're a busy guy, a lot on your plate. What are you following, listening to, reading? Like what keeps you in it when you do have time for yourself to push outside of your comfort zone and keep growing? How are you doing that? What mediums are you using? I use Instagram a ton. You would think as old as I am, I'm a Facebook guy because everybody says Facebook's for old people. I watch a ton of webinars. Through Instagram, you, you're put in, you're networking with all these different departments, all these different guys, and you learn quickly who the big time guys are. I was fortunate enough to have Mike Lombardo in my back door. I mean, to watch him and then you watch whom he networks with and he's not, he's networking with guys that are legit and I, I follow those guys and it just, it spawned into this whole I don't just follow guys to follow guys. I, I, I'm trying to learn as much as I can 
and pass on as much as I can before I get out this door. Having those great chiefs and commissioners and captains, and I've been fortunate to work with a lot of the best, but there's so many more out there that they're friends with and I, I friend them. And I like Instagram. I do read a few books I'm based mostly on leadership. I watch Jocko. Of course, everybody watches Jocko, but it depends what I'm looking for. If I'm looking for tactics, if I'm looking for leadership, mostly Instagram, phone calls, I'll call. Like if I had a question, I would I would call Chief Lombardo, Commissioner Lombardo, if I really, and I'm sure he would take the phone call. There's just so much out there. You, you That's at the tip of your fingers that I didn't have when I first came on. There's really, there's only excuses as to why you, you're not trying to get better because it's all right there. Most of these kids are on their cell phones now anyhow. Swiping right or whatever the hell it is. So you've worked engine, truck, and rescue. Do you have a preference between the three? Oh, boy. You asked me to split the baby here. <laughs> um, the rescue. Right. You went to every single structure fire. I, I don't know if that house changed me. I mean, it changed me from a guy that thought he was good to a guy that they pushed me to be someone I didn't even know I could be. And so I, I really owe that house a lot. I'll always have a bond with that house, the guys that are there, and, and the technical aspect of it, the confined space, the rope gigs, the ice. The, it was always something different. When you would pull up on a scene, and I'm a chief now, you look for those guys. You look for those guys that you know whatever job you'll give them, they're going to get it done. You may have to pull them back by their coat a little bit because <laughs> they're so aggressive. But you know the guys that show up on scene and when you say, I need this, they're going to get it done. And the rescue was, the rescue is that crew. And there's other crews out there that are like that. But that house, pretty much to a man, is like that. And that's why they had 33 out of the 50 of that lieutenant's list that get promoted. Those guys get the job done. How's your housework around meals? Do you eat together? Are you included in that? When I'm in a firehouse, yeah, 100% I'm in. It's important bonding experience. I'm a terrible cook. Terrible. But I can wash the shit out of some dishes. It doesn't mean I don't cook. I just cook expecting to get abused afterwards and they never fail. But yeah, I think I eat with those guys, especially now it's two days a week and I'm a f huge fitness guy. I work out every day. I try and watch, eat clean on my days off. But if you're in a firehouse and you're only there two days a week, you can eat clean five days. I try and always eat with the guys, the men. I eat last. Uh, it's a big rule of mine. I eat last. You make sure they're fed. You make sure they're taken care of. And just the subtle message it sends that here, I'm here to take care of you but you have to believe it. You don't do it for show again because they can tell. They can tell guys that are faking the funk. Are you involved in hiring at all? And how has that shifted in your department over the years? No, I am not. That is run strictly through civil service and the administration. It's not something I ever desire to pursue. <laughs> going to try and get back to the line as soon as possible, but you have to earn your stripes. And even scoring number one, you have to pay your dues. And I would never tell one of these guys, hey, you need to retire so I can get to the line because I'm that dinosaur. 
Guys look at me as, as that 26-year-old guy that could go anytime. So I don't ever want to be a part of the hiring process. I'm not going to say anything that can get me in trouble about the hiring process. I'm just going to leave it at that. I guess it's more and more a sensitive topic for sure. Yeah, I'm trying to say something without saying something. <laughs> <laughs> What's next on the horizon for you? Currently operating is the safety chief within a department and we have a for years now we've always had a standing committee for line of duty deaths so for the next few months that'll be unfortunately what's tying up most of my uh my time is sitting down but i think you know obviously the department jay's family the citizens need they're owed some sort of what happened some sort of sequence of events what happened what we can do better, what we did really well. And so I'll be deep diving into that for the next few months. There's not going to be a lot of time on top of that. Although I still get to go to fires as a safety chief, which is why I kind of came here is any structure fire that comes in, I can go to during the day. When I was at the train bureau, because the train bureau is outside the city, I could technically go, but if by the time I got there, most of the time it was out. So obviously I'm still chasing work. I love the job. I love work. I love teaching guys how to do the work. So, I mean, that's going to, this next few months are going to be that investigation and they're going to be trying to be there for my peers and the family. And that's about it right now. That's my sole focus right now. What's your view on dash cams in the trucks and helmet cams on the guys? Are you pro or con on that? And is it beneficial to have that for looking back on what occurred on calls? I have two helmet camps because I am a stroke. I love the job. I, and I don't mean that in a detrimental way. I'm a fire stroke, but I can see where they would be detrimental. I think they're a great learning tool. I think you can use them because then you actually get to see what that person saw and why they made the decision they made. But I could also see where they're a liability legal-wise, where they can get you hemmed up. I mean, especially the ones in the rigs. I mean, the rigs, there's a rash. And now we just implemented an emergency vehicle operators course here in Buffalo about a year ago after a rash of accidents. And they're getting ready to place cameras in the rigs. And that will save a lot of guys discipline. Because right now, if you're in an accident, it's your fault. But if you're going through a green light, some guy T-bones you, and it's on camera, and it's going to save you. So as long as you're driving with due regard, they're going to save you. But I could see both points of view. I always told my crew, listen, if something happens to me in a fire, rip that thing off my helmet and put it in my locker for my wife because I don't want my IOD or my, my benefits to be stripped because I did something outside the scope of our SOPs or not that you should be operating outside the scope, but we all know it's a fine line. Yeah. Is your department pretty good with that overall with more so guidelines and letting guys do the job as opposed to trying to back them into a corner, tie their hands? Yeah. I mean, most chiefs are. We have our admin obviously, and we have a commissioner and they ultimately really run the department, but your chiefs and your officers, they guide the department. They guide the department on the fire grounds. And most chiefs, they know the players that are good and 
they let them do their thing within reason, keeping safety in mind, obviously. Is there any core message or thought that you'd like to finish off on before we wrap up? Lead. The fire service needs leaders. They need genuine, transparent leaders. In order to be a leader, you have to be transparent. You have to be self-reflecting. You have to be genuine. Those are the three traits. If I could tell someone, if you want to make a positive impact on this fire service, be transparent, be genuine, and self-reflect. Look within yourself first to improve, and then use that to improve others. Other than that, just stay safe. Go home. Make sure everyone goes home. Well, deeply sorry for your loss. Obviously, it's all of our loss because it's a family, but obviously it's much closer to home for you guys. So we'll be thinking about you all tomorrow and moving forward, and I wish as much peace to you as, I, as you can possibly muster. It's going to be a process for this department to get its feet back underneath them because they're so young and tragedy hits everybody, no matter how much time you have on and it, and people react to it differently. We're going to circle the wagons to quote the Buffalo Bills and circle this family. And, and whether they know it or not, they just adopted the Buffalo Fire Department. Thank you. I really appreciate your time today. It's been great to finally connect and chat one-on-one. Thank you. It's nice to put a name to the face. All right, I'll let you back to the rest of your day. Thanks, you stay safe.